Father, we just lift up Dave to you, and uh, we just give you, yeah, we give you glory for what you have done in Dave and for what you are doing through him, Lord. And I pray this morning that your grace would flow through him to us and that you would speak to us and that we would be changed out of what you have given Dave to share this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Marcus. Super. Um, it really is a privilege to be able to share with you today, but my apologies to those who are younger. The speech is going to be long. <laughs> where's Seth? Where's Seth? Is it gone? Oh, oh it's for his benefits. Yeah, but it's taking long, eh? They're taking long. Um, the title of my message today is Cosmic Christmas. And what you're looking at is a section of our Milky Way, the center of our galaxy. Um, that image is a snapshot of a 50 light years wide section of our Milky Way um, galaxy. We'll talk a little bit about what that um, means for us. And today I am on a journey. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm going to be taking us on a bit of a journey through space and time to find the real Jesus. And I don't know when it happened exactly, but somewhere between childhood and my varsity years, I became a Christmas Grinch. I don't know if it's happened to anyone else. Um, I have always loved the sound of Christmas beetles. That never changed. But something about decorated trees, overweight men in red and white, decorations littering the shops just started to get to me. You know, the general festivities of this time of the year, I became a Grinch. Again, I'm not sure exactly when it happened since then, but between those staunch Grinch days and today, I rediscovered the joy of Christmas. Now, I think it has a lot to do with raising three young kids, because when this time of the year rolls around, as a parent, you get a front row seat to their unbridled excitement. It's Christmas. And they're just going back in their mind, like, have I been naughty or nice recently? <laughs> when is the cutoff date for this nice thing? The Christmas lists go up on the fridge. The advent calendars appear out of thin air. And Christmas is here. So somewhere between my Grinch days and today, I rediscovered the joy of Christmas. But I'm still frustrated with the commercialization of the Christmas period. Don't get me wrong. Uh, that's, there's a lot about it that still frustrates me because the truth of this season gets drowned out by the noise um, that's all around us at this time of year. So I'm on a bit of a journey to, um, to find again the inspiring truth about Christmas that changed the world, because that's really what it did. It totally transformed the, way, the world. And there are many ways in which we tell the Christmas story. And unfortunately, if we hear the same version of the story, or we, if we hear it told in the same way year after year, it becomes familiar, and it loses its spark. It loses the transformative power that it has if we just hear the same story year in and year out. And uh, so this year, I've been on a bit of a journey to, for myself, 
first of all, actually find the real Jesus in all of the clutter of Christmas. And this past term, I've shared it once or twice, I've been teaching a unit on astronomy. And I love astronomy. I could, I could spend days on the James Webb Telescope website. Like I really could. And I do. I have. Um, and it, it strikes me that as I look at the wonder of space that is being revealed to us, and I see in Scripture there are these verses about how Jesus Christ is the one who holds it all together, that I need to figure out who he is because he is lost, in my mind, in the noise of what happens during this time. So let me set the scene, and I hope that during this journey together, we will all of us discover fresh wonder at the gift of who Christ is. And uh, two years ago, on a cloudy Christmas morning in South America, in the rainforests of South America, a rocket took to the sky. And it carried one of the most important, most expensive pieces of technology that has ever been made by humans. And that was the James Webb Space Telescope. I don't know who decided that it was going to be launched into space on Christmas morning, but I want to thank that person because it is to me such a significant choice. Because 2,000 years ago, we had people who looked at the stars that led them to Christ. And now today, we're sending a rocket to space on Christmas morning as if pointing back to the people who've gone before us, who've looked to the heavens and looked for Christ. And that was the 25th of December, 2021. And the, the commentator who was busy narrating this scene, he says, from the rainforests to the dawn of the universe, the James Webb Space Telescope is off on its mission. And in the two years since leaving Earth, if you've seen any of the images, they are mind-blowing. They really are. And I'm going to go through some of those today. And they're quite stunning images of the universe. But that's more, it's more than just the universe to me. Um, to quote Francis Collins, he's one of my intellectual heroes. He is a geneticist. Uh, he's also a person of faith. And he is an incredibly intelligent man. Uh, he has said the following about major scientific achievements that he's witnessed in his lifetime. He says, these are both stunning scientific achievements and occasions to worship. Because as a person of faith, when, he, when we discover things about the way that God has made the universe or made the world or made us, we don't praise the science. We praise the one who originated all of this that we um, are enjoying. Now, of course, the science is incredible, but more incredible to me is what it reveals about the infinite glory of God. And as we go through these images, uh, you will see a story of infinity times infinity. It's actually too many zeros for, for us to get our heads around. It, it, it really does hurt your brain trying to take it all in. But at the same time, it's a story so tender as we encounter a love that comes from another world. It comes from another realm. It's actually too tender for us to understand. It's a story of God's glory, and it's a story of human dignity being restored by God. It's a story of mystery, but also of a God that is knowable to us. He's not unreachable. He's knowable. As this God from the eternal realm steps softly into the world of time on Christmas morning. So let's begin. We're going to go to our first stop. 
And what you're looking at on the screen is a little bit difficult to pronounce. It's called Ro Ofiyuki. Ro Ofiyuki. And this is one of, or it is, the closest star-forming region to Earth. And it's 390 light years away. If you're not sure what a light year is, it's how far light travels in a year. And light travels at 300,000 kilometers per second. So in a year, it travels nine and a half trillion kilometers. Nine and a half trillion kilometers. And it took light, traveling at 950 trillion kilometers a year, 390 years to reach us from Rho of Yuki. But we're getting carried away with the science. Psalm 8, verse 3 to 5, says the following. When I look at the night sky and I see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, your handmade sky jewelry, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for them. Yet you made them a little lower than God and have crowned them with glory and honor. Now, I start here because, first of all, I love this. I just love it. But also... I'm looking at something from 390 years ago. That I'm not seeing it as it is now. That is from 390 years ago. So, what's happening 390 years ago in human history, you might wonder. And what's actually happening is the heart of the scientific revolution. You've probably heard of a guy named Galileo Galilei. He's just passed away when the light left Rho of Yuki that we're seeing there. Johannes Kepler who came up with laws of planetary motion. He's just passed away. Both of them believers. Isaac Newton has just been born. And Isaac Newton will go on to be one of the most important scientists in the history of the world, a person of faith who viewed science as a way to understand and interpret the wonder of God's creation. And he made it his mission to try and put into words and into equations the principles that God had created to, to govern the universe. And what we are looking at there, the, the, the light that we are looking at there, left Rho Ophiuchi when Isaac Newton is born. This is amazing. Okay, but now, this is not just about science, and I must apologize for you, like I don't have a sign for nerd alert, but I'm often asked, how do you, as a science teacher, also remain a person of faith. Are those two things not opposing each other? Are they not opposing worldviews? And many people see them as in this irreconcilable battle. You can either be a person of science or you can be a person of faith. That's a recent conundrum because most of the significant scientists that we have seen coming through human history have been people of faith. And they've made it their mission to understand the natural world as a form of worship to God. Now, to me, science and faith are different ways of knowing. They are based on evidence, but different types of evidence. Science is based on the evidence of things that we can see. Faith is based on evidence of things that we cannot see. And they ask different questions. So science is interested in the what happened, how did it happen, and when did it happen? Faith is interested in the questions of why did it happen and who made it happen? And we ask deeper questions as well. Like, why am I here? What's the purpose of my life? Like, 
is there a reason for me being here with you today? It, I can't answer those through science. I can only answer those through the lens of faith. And Stephen Hawking, one of the most uh, well-known scientists of the, the last century, he says the following, even if there is only one unified theory, it's just a set of rules and equations. Listen to his question. What is it that breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe? And that is the question you can go on YouTube, you can look for hours and hours and hours at the most intelligent scientists, they will not be able to answer that question. Because it's, a, it's not a question that science can answer, it's a question that only faith can answer. So I look at this and I think science and faith, they, are, they, they can go together if science is a mechanism of worship. So if you're like me, um, I, I have a lot of questions and they are they deep personal questions wanting to know about the purpose of my life. Why am I here? What's going on in the world around me? What purpose does God have for my life? And eyes of faith are needed when searching for meaning. Now, here's a question that the James Webb Telescope people, NASA and the guys who sent it up to space, ambitiously set out for it to answer. Are we alone in the universe? But we, by faith, already know the answer to that question. Because as the sun sets and the night sky sparkles to life over Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, we hear a resounding no, we are not alone because Emmanuel has come. Okay, second stop on our tour, the Southern Ring Nebula. Yo, that's amazing. Now, a nebula, nerd alert, is a giant cloud of gas and dust in space. Some nebulae are regions where new stars are being born. Other nebulae are places where stars have exploded and are, are dying. And this southern ring nebula is located approximately, wait for it, 2,000 light years away from us. Okay. That is significant because we are looking at the moment in history when Jesus was on earth. The light that we are seeing left the Southern Ring Nebula 2,000 years ago. So that's not the star that the Magi saw. That's, that's not what we're looking at. This is a moment that's 2,000 years ago that is when the eternal sun stepped into time. It's when God came to make his dwelling with us. And this, for me, is a miracle moment. I can't look at the Southern Ring Nebula and not think of Jesus, I, <laughs> just because of when it is. I'm looking at something that was in the heavens when my Savior was walking on our earth. He was walking here with us. And I don't know about you, but I feel so connected. It's difficult sometimes to think of the span of human history, and you think, oh, 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, there's... There's nothing to connect me to that moment. It feels so far away. It almost feels like another world. But the James Webb Space Telescope, just last year, shared with us this image from the days of Christ. And that is a beautiful thing. So I can see the visits of the Magi unfolding almost in real time. 
And it's in Matthew 2, verse 1 to 11. I'm going to read it quickly. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of Herod. And about that same time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. And the star that they're talking about is the planet Jupiter in retrograde is the scientific explanation. And it's fascinating. Anyway, that's not for today. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. O you, O Bethlehem, in the land of, Judea, of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened up their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They opened up their treasure chests. A lady, Deborah Hosmer, she's uh, an astrophysicist and a follower of Jesus. She recently wrote about the Magi's journey and she said, they were curious and God used that curiosity and a sign in the heavens to draw them to himself. And that's what I have sensed as I've been exploring space again, that God has been using these signs in the heavens to draw me to himself. Because I've experienced fresh wonder at who he is. She goes on to say, whatever the sign was, the Magi, when they saw it, didn't get stuck in scholarly debates, trying to figure out its meaning. Instead, they decided to set out on a long, uncertain journey. Despite the inevitable inconveniences of the trip, they didn't stop asking questions and stayed eager to learn. They didn't see the newborn king as competition. Rather, they rejoiced when they found, found the Christ child. They didn't travel to gain power or wealth. Rather, they traveled to offer their worship and their costliest treasures. In the same way, may God open our hearts to follow wherever he leads with curiosity and joy. Stop number three. The pillars of creation. Yo! Now, the pillars of creation are part of a vast nebula called Eagle Nebula. It is massive. Because this section that we are looking at over here is seven light years across. And light travels at nine and a half trillion kilometers a year. <laughs> so that's seven light years across. And it was first made famous when the Hubble telescope spotted this particular section of the Eagle Nebula uh, back in the 90s. But we've never seen it like this before. This is the image from the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, to understand the events of Jesus' Bethlehem birth and the Magi's mission to find him, we need to go further back in time. So this, uh, this image that we're looking at here is about 6,500 light years away from us. About 6,500 light years. Now, you might be wondering what happened 6,500 years ago. We'll get to that in a moment. But when I see 
pillars of creation. And I hear the other name for this feature in space is called the hand of God. And you can kind of see this hand. I can't show you the entire thing. It's too big. But you can see this hand extended out into space. So it's, it's sometimes called the hand of God. And I can't hear the phrases pillars of creation or hand of God and not think about the beginning. Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is a who. God, the person behind it all, carries on in Job 9, verse 8 to 10. He alone spread out the heavens and marches on the waves of the sea. He made all the stars and the constellations of the southern sky. He does great things, too marvelous to understand. He performs countless miracles. That's from Job. In Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Psalm 102, verse 25, long ago you laid the foundations of the earth and made the heavens with your hands. In the beginning, God created. There are lots of disputes that go on in Genesis, about Genesis. There's a, a man I, uh, I really respect, John Lennox, who's written a book called The Seven Days That Divided the World on the book, on chapter 1 and 2 in Genesis, because people have such strong opinions about what God did when and how long God was allowed to take to do all of these things. The thing that matters to me is that in the beginning, God created. And it speaks in Genesis 1 about how the Holy Spirit hovered over creation. That is such a beautiful, tender image. It wasn't a distant God. It wasn't these warring divine beings that just the earth is created by accident in the fallout of their conflict. No, it's a tender God who creates. And the Holy Spirit hovers. And God is the word speaker. He's the light maker. To answer Stephen Hawking's question, he's the fire breather. He's the one who breathed fire into the universe and caused it to be. He breathed life into the dirt, and we became alive in His presence. Whatever you believe about how long creation took, that is the truth, that God made us alive. And He planted eternity in the virgin soil of our hearts, that we would become alive and awake to an eternal divine God. And woven into our being is this desire to always know Him, at the deepest place of the human heart is this desire to know the maker, to know the one who's made us. Otherwise, why do we spend all of our lives searching? People who don't know God spend their lives searching for the meaning of their life. It's found in the one who made them. And we know how the story unfolds. It's, it's, it's all too familiar, this tragedy People made for the presence of God are banished from His garden. And we step out into the lonely, fallen world, but we carry with us this faint promise of redemption where God says to Eve and Adam that there will be a future son that will one day crush the head of the serpent. One day. So they head out into this lonely, fallen world knowing that there's one day going to come a future son of Eve that's going to break the curse. And we will one day be free and fully alive in God's presence. I love the C.S. Lewis quote where he says, If I find in myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, the logical conclusion is that I was made for another world. 
And all of us, until we discover God, there is this desire that we cannot, we cannot fulfill. And on Christmas morning, a portal opens over Bethlehem, and the Holy Spirit hovers again. It hovers over Mary, and the future son crosses the threshold from another world, and he arrives. He sets foot on fallen soil, but the only problem is it doesn't look anything like we expect. And that takes us to our next, our next stop, stop number four of six, the cosmic cliffs. 7,600 light years away. And around about this time, uh, good news for farmers is that agriculture is just starting to become a thing. 7,600 years ago, people are learning how to cultivate crops and how to work with livestock to domesticate animals. And as a result, human settlements are starting to get bigger and bigger. And one of the first, I was delighted to find out, is Jericho. Is, is, uh, Jericho exists when this light left the cosmic cliffs. Early stages of Jericho. And doesn't this image also look a lot like Christmas? Um, but these are the cosmic cliffs. And it's called that because it's like this... Um, Almost the sheer rock face that you can't get over. And the human history of this time is obviously interesting. But for me, when I see the cosmic cliffs, I think of this great divide that existed between heaven and earth. That we could not get across. Cliffs that were insurmountable for the human race. There's this longing to get back into the eternal presence of God, but there is this barrier in the heavens that stops us. And uh, it reminds me of this hymn that Paul shared with the Philippian church, Philippians 2, verse 6 to 7. Christ Jesus, though he was God, did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And looking at this image, I can imagine Jesus stepping off the cosmic cliff into the frailty of the human condition. He, he wrapped himself in human brokenness, and he wrapped himself in our fragile earthness. And there's a poet that I, I enjoy. He says, God put on human skin, and he became one of us. There's a, a guy who, uh, Joshua Leventhal, one of my favorite uh, songwriters, he, he's written a song called Here Now. And the chorus goes like this. Here now, the almighty one becomes breakable. And at this moment in history, Jesus steps off the cosmic cliffs into the human condition. The limitless one knows his first limits. The eternal one is all of a sudden bound in time. And the luminous one walks into the valley of our shadows. Jesus arrives. And I don't know that I would have scripted it like this. If I wanted to convince people that God had arrived, I wouldn't do it this way. Like I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have planted him in a humble stable in the Middle East, unrecognizable to royalty. Like I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done it like this. Like, it's not good for God's personal brand. It's, like, it really isn't. <laughs> like, doesn't he care about his reputation? 
And in many ways, this just magnifies his glory. Because Jesus was so secure in his eternal perfection that it didn't matter how he came to earth. That he could come to earth as the humblest of humble servants. And his glory would be all the more evident to us. And in taking on this level of humility, he actually showed us what his heavenly glory really looks like. And he, the way I think of it is that Jesus, in this moment, he laid down his crown that was rightfully his in glory. He laid it down so that he could lift our heads. People who we'd lived in shame from the moment when we were cast out of the garden. We lived in shame and Jesus came to restore human dignity and make us in this image, remake us by the Holy Spirit. Okay, the cartwheel galaxy. Second to last stop. I need some water. Everything that we've looked at up to now is still inside our home galaxy, the Milky Way. Like we haven't even left our own galaxy up until now. And this is the cartwheel galaxy approximately 500 million light years away. So now it's like, don't even try. That's far. <laughs> and what's even further are the galaxies that are in the background. And we'll get, this is the second to last one. The next one will, will just wipe your mind off the board. So this is the cartwheel galaxy. It's called that because it looks, you can see the kind of spokes of the wheel. Um, you can imagine the wheel of a cart. And there's some questions that um, scientists are puzzled by. They accept the fact that there are these amazing principles, these equations, these constants that are evident in the universe. And there's this principle, it's called the fine-tuning principle. Like there's something mysterious about the fact that the universe is so finely tuned, that it works. And you might not realize it, but right now, we are flying through space at hundreds of kilometers per second, all of us. But yet here we are, going about our lives, aware of our, existing, our existence, asking deep and meaningful questions. It just works. So from the most magnificent of galaxies to the infinitesimally small world of subatomic particles, it all just magically works. And to the point that we, as conscious human beings, can make decisions about our lives, we can go about our days and, you know, we just assume it's all going to work. Gravity works. And it's never changed. It's just, it's always there. And scientists love this cartwheel galaxy because it shows the interactions of galaxies and how gravity holds them together. Albert Einstein once said, the most incomprehensible thing about the world is that it is comprehensible. So as we look at this, I mean, we look at it and we're like, oh, cool. But we sent a piece of technology into space, millions of kilometers away from Earth, that's taking snapshots of the universe, sending them back to us, that we can interpret and we can be like, cool. It's just, it's just incredible. And at the same time, we are totally unaware of the fact that we are held. You might have seen that 
um, blue dot suspended in a sunbeam. There's that famous picture of the earth, just this tiny little speck in a sunbeam captured by, I think it was Voyager. It was one of the, um, the modules that was just kind of sent out to space to take photos as it goes. And we are held. And as we look at this, there's, there's this, um, for me, this curiosity to, I want to know, okay, how does God hold all of this together? And he reveals it in his word. Paul expresses this in Colossians 1. It says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and he made the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and the authorities of the unseen world. He ends off in verse 17. It says, everything was created through him and for him. He existed before everything else, and he holds all creation together. He holds all creation together. And the one who holds all creation together steps into human form. And we sing about it, and we read about it, but my, my, my brain is like, God, that is... It's just beyond me. It's this mystery that I can't, like I can't wrap my head around. I can't, I can't make sense of. I, I, I want it to make sense. But there's this mysterious element to God. And Paul goes on in Colossians 1, and he says, shortly after this, he said, The mystery that was hidden from angels and mankind for ages and generations has now been revealed to God's people. God, in His eternal plan, chose to make known to them how great are the riches of His glory of this mystery, which is Christ in and among you, the hope and guarantee of glory, Christ in and among you. So in Christ, all things hold together. And the Greek phrase that Paul uses there is of an argument. And you know when someone's got an argument that just falls to pieces because you're like, that's really, your reasoning is very inconsistent. But this picture that Paul paints of this, in Christ, it all holds together, is the perfectly coherent argument in which all of the lines of reasoning are held together. It sticks. And that's what he's talking about, how Jesus is the one in whom it all holds together. G.K. Chesterton, uh, he once wrote that the person of faith allows one thing to be mysterious and everything else becomes lucid. I love that. Allowing, I have to, I have to allow Christ to be mysterious. <laughs> Stephen James says, if you can make sense of Jesus, explain him, define him, or make him sound reasonable, my guess is you've never actually met him. And so by allowing Christ to be mysterious, he is, he's beyond what we can understand and make sense of. The broader plans and purposes of God for humankind, they start to make sense. Does this mean that everything that happens in our lives is going to make sense? No, it's not. But one day when we see Him in glory, we will see His, we, we'll see His eternal plan. And then it will make sense. And the Magi, they glimpsed what Paul calls the glory of this mystery as they bowed down and worshipped Him. They recognized the riches of Christ, and so then they opened up their treasures. The challenge that I've 
ask myself is, do I see what they saw in the stable that day? Do I perceive the riches that are in Christ? And am I, as a person, am I opening up the treasures of my heart because I see the riches in Christ that God has made available? We have one final stop to make, and um, there's this verse I want to end this section with, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 24, the message. God's ultimate miracle and wisdom all wrapped in one, Christ. God's ultimate miracle and wisdom all wrapped up in one. The final stop on our galactic tour, the sunrise arc. Okay, cool. I just want to point this out. This is the sunrise arc over here. And it's actually a galaxy, but it's on the other side of a whole lot of other galaxies, so we can't see it in its full detail. And this is what's called gravitational lensing for another time. This star over here is called Arendelle. It's a million times more luminous than the sun. And it's the most distant object that we've ever detected. It's 12.8 billion light years away, which is far. Okay, that's the first piece of information. The second piece of information is if you can imagine holding at arm's length a needle. You know, like one of those needles that's so frustrating you can't put the cotton through? And you cut the cotton so that it maybe is going to go through next time? So if you can hold that needle at arm's length and look through the eye, that's the, the size of the aperture, effectively, that the James Webb Space Telescope is looking through when it captures this image. So what we are looking at is a speck of space through the eye of a needle held at arm's length. And in that image are thousands of galaxies, billions of light years away from us. And if you move the needle... And if you move the needle, and if you move the needle, and if you move the needle, you will see more and more and more and more and more of it. And in Christ, all of this is held together. Like, He is so far beyond our understanding. So far. And there's this song called, So Will I. You might have heard of it. It's from... Um, a guy named uh, Benjamin William Hastings. He used to be with Hillsong United, and he wrote it. It goes like this. God of creation, there at the start, before the beginning of time, with no point of reference, you spoke to the dark and fleshed out the wonder of light. And as you speak, a hundred billion galaxies are born. In the vapor of your breath, the planets form. If the stars were made to worship, so will I. I can see your heart in everything you've made, every burning star, a signal fire of grace. If creation sings your praises, so will I. Go and look for that song on YouTube. It is profound. Okay, so this image, it's called the Sunrise Arc because it's essentially from the dawn of creation. So what we are looking at, we're looking at some of the very first galaxies that responded to the word of God when he said, let there be light. And the universe exploded to life in response to his word. The fire breather, and then there comes the universe. I, like I'm trying to imagine what it's like. I haven't got a problem if someone says it was a big bang. 
I really haven't got a problem with that. Because it, it would have been, like, noticeable. There was nothing, and then there was something. And the person, you might be interested to know, who originally came up with the idea of the Big Bang was a Catholic priest. And when he first introduced the idea, the Vatican said, yes, this is what explains creation. Just, in, there we go, random fact. Now, because as Christians, we are, we are allergic to scientific terms often because we feel like God is threatened, but he's not. Like we are the ones, our, our understanding is often threatened, but God is so far beyond us. And this captures the moment that for me, God breathes fire into the equations that govern the universe. And that is awesome. It's the same word that stepped into time. John 1 speaks about the Word, Christ, the Word, that came and made His dwelling with us. And it's difficult to comprehend just how vast the universe is. And Francis Collins says, you get the chance once in a while as a scientist to discover something that no human knew before, but God knew it. In a way, that's what science is doing. It's glimpsing God's mind and being in awe of it. And that's what we're doing. We'll, as I look at this, I don't think, ooh, wow, scientists are so cool. No, I'm like, God. <laughs> like, this is just mind-blowing. I thought you were big, but I realized that it needed to be adjusted. Like, you're massive. You're beyond time and space, beyond the realms that I can get my head around. So through the lens of the James Webb Space Telescope, we get a glimpse into the infinite complexity and brilliance of God's mind. But I see something else as well. When I look at what is believed to be one of the first galaxies to ever form and one of the first stars to ever form, I, see, I get a glimpse into the mind of God way back then. And I'm reminded of Ephesians 1. And it says, Long before He laid down the earth's foundations, He had us in mind. I'm looking at a moment when God had me in mind. And that, it doesn't, overwhelm, that doesn't, it doesn't make me look at this and start to doubt my significance as a human being. It makes me look at that and say, God, if this is what you can make and you even have time to give me a second look, how significant must we be to you? And as far as we are aware, there are no other sentient beings in the universe. But God his love is on us. I'll, it's in Scripture. It says, He settled on us as the focus of His love. When He spoke the word that made the universe, before He'd done that, in His eternal perfection in the Trinity, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father had already decided that we would be the focus of their love. To be made whole and holy by His love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift giving by the hand of his beloved son, Jesus, who is with us. And I just want to just throw this verse out because it's cool. Um, Psalm 147, verse 4 to 5. He counts the stars and calls them all by name. Do you want to know how many stars there are estimated to be? A septillion, which is a lot. So <laughs> it goes 
million, billion, trillion, quadrillion, quintillion, quintillion, yes. And then it goes sextillion and then septillion. So it's like the seventh order of magnitude of the aliens. And these septillion stars are believed to be spread out across two trillion galaxies. And the God of the universe calls them all by name. Wow. So Ephesians 1, if he cares about the stars, how much more does he care about the people whom he formed out of the dust of the earth by his hands? So it gives us a glimpse into the eternal plan of God. And as I look at Christmas, I don't just see this one moment that's disconnected from a bigger story. I see this the almost like it's not quite the culmination just yet, but it's the moment when the plan is kicked into action. It's the plan is engaged. The eternal plan of God sets foot on earth at Christmas. And I see the broader picture, the much more vast and overwhelming plan of God that was set in place before he laid the earth's foundations. And long before the beginning of space and time, Jesus had accepted the cost. We think that it was a reaction to what Adam and Eve did. <laughs> it wasn't them. It would have been me. It, I promise. Um, it would have been one of us. We would have messed it up. Someone. And we, we, blame, we blame Adam and Eve, but it would have been one of us. And Christ accepted the cost. So as I look back this far in time, I see the Trinity and their eternal perfection choosing to set us as the focus of their love. Okay, I want to leave you with a quote as we close. And it's from a, uh, a guy named John Polkinghorn, who was, love that name, British, John Polkinghorn, and he was a theoretical physicist and a theologian. Don't often go together, but if there's a life goal, uh, there's a life goal for you. Theoretical physicist and theologian. He says, we shall never have God neatly packaged up. He will always exceed our expectations and prove himself to be a God of surprises. I love that. So this Christmas, my, my prayer for all of us is that we would gaze into the gift of God with fresh wonder. And not be guilty like I have so often been of being so familiar with the story that it just loses its spark when actually the whole universe turns on that axis. And Christ, I, I, as I've been going through this, I'm like, there's this phrase that Paul uses in Colossians 1 where he talks about the mystery of Christ. And I, I, it's mueo is the Greek root. And it means to be initiated into mystery, to be initiated into mystery. It's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. And if, if there's anything that I want for my, for my life of faith, it's to be initiated more and more and more and more into the unfolding mystery of God. That It's more than we can ever get through in our life. We're going to need eternity to wrap our heads around God. But that's what, I, that's what I want. Is this Christmas season, oh Lord, reveal more of yourself, more and more and more and more, the God of surprises. Let's pray.
Lord, I thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, the one from the very beginning who has set himself aside in love. And Lord, I thank you for the gift that you have given us in Jesus. And Lord, with these signs that we've looked at in the heavens today, I pray that they would draw us into worship of God. They would draw us into worship of Christ. They would draw us into a deeper longing for you, Lord, the riches of your mystery. And your word says that in you are the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You are the greatest treasure that there is. Lord, may we not be distracted by all of the noise and the commercialization and all of the fluff of this time of year. May we just be focused on the beauty of Christ. And Holy Spirit, would you continue to reveal more and more of the mystery of our God? Teach us, reveal to us, initiate us into the mystery of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. We thank you, Lord, that you are infinitely more expansive, complex, and wonderful than we've ever imagined. And you draw us into a relationship with you by your Son. Thank you, Lord, for this in Jesus' name. Amen.